from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Joel this morning. That's where we're going to be in our study today. We are in a series, and we just started it last Sunday, called Prophets in Exile. And the goal of this end-of-the-year series is to learn some lessons that can be seen and learned from the Old Testament people of God as they were going through their struggles of exile and hearing from the prophets in particular. And what's intriguing is last week we studied the prophet Hosea, and, and one of the things that we saw in that study was that God... God is faithful to his promises and his people, even when his people are not faithful to him. That he is the merciful God that we just sang about, that he's the God who will restore his people when they turn to him. And we saw in the book of Hosea that the challenge for the people of God was that when they got into their land that God had promised them, that everything began to get good. And God had warned them that when things get good, do not forget the Lord. Yet the people of God did exactly that. They forgot God. They they put him aside. They began to follow after false idols. They became decadent um, and immoral in their lifestyle. And, and Hosea, in his lifestyle evangelism, was calling them back to the faithful God. Well, today, we're going to jump into the book of Joel. Now, before you think to yourself, oh, this ought to be easy. Last week, you covered 14 chapters. This week, we're only covering three. Uh, let me just tell you that Joel is more challenging than Hosea. And the reason for that is Joel cover or Hosea covers one story with one timeline and is thinking about one thing, calling God's people back. The prophet Joel covers from the book of Exodus to the present day time of Joel to a future potential restoration to the book of Acts and then ultimately into the book of Revelation. So we're going to cover most of the Bible today in one sermon, right? So so it is an exhilarating book, but it is a hard book. In the book of Joel, you're going to notice a major theme, and it's called uh, the Day of the Lord. That's the title of the sermon today. Now, when you think of the Day of the Lord, it sounds ominous, doesn't it? Like, the Day of the Lord, right? Now, I, I grew up in Southern Baptist circles in the South, and we did this thing that was a normal annual, if not biannual event. We did a church lock-in. Everybody know what a church lock-in is? It's where you like go to your church, you lock yourselves in for 24 hours, you play games, you do all kind of weird stuff, and our youth pastors like to show us scary videos. So... Inevitably, about 11 o'clock at night, as we're all kind of sitting in the sanctuary, our youth pastor decided every time we had a lock-in that he would show us the like 17-part series called The Thief in the Night. Anybody ever heard that series before? It was all about the rapture. The end of time. And what he did was he took a VHS tape. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a big thing. It's kind of rectangular. It fits into this thing called a VHS player, and it sounds like when it plays, and it goes up on a video screen. We didn't have streaming things like Netflix or Hulu or those things. So we watched this this series. Now, about 2 o'clock in the morning, after starting this series, watching about the rapture, after we've watched the 17th episode of Thief in the Night, we are terrified of what is going to happen. We did not want to go outside because we were afraid we had missed the rapture. I mean, the day of the Lord was upon It was this scary thing, right? What's intriguing, though, is when you read the Bible, and in biblical history, the day of the Lord was typically viewed as a day of blessing 
and a day of hope for God's people and a day of great problem for God's enemies. So if you're a child of God, it would be nothing for you to be afraid of. Be nothing for you to be terrified of. It was a day when the Lord saved his people ultimately from their enemies, executed perfect justice, and cared and protected his people for all time. It's a day that God's people would look forward to with hope. One day, on the day of the Lord, God would finally have his day. Well, in the book of Joel, unlike any other New Test- Old Testament prophet, you're going to read about the day of the Lord. Now, what you're going to notice in the book of Joel, which is actually really fascinating and something we're going to utilize for application, is you're going to notice that there are many different days of the Lord. We're also going to notice in the book of Joel a portrait of how God saves his people by his grace. That's what we're going to read this morning. That's what we're going to study. So here's what the hope is. This is the big idea. This will, this will come up on the screen. It should be in your notes. And it's this. It's God is intricately involved in every aspect of universal history to bring mercy and judgment. Now I want to be honest with you as we start today that I hope as we get done today that your perspective of God will be bigger. That's my hope. We as Christians have a tendency to think of God in the sense of like the Greeks thought about their their pantheon. You have this one big God and he's doing a wrestling match with all the other little gods. And one day in the final day, he's going to have great victory, but he's really struggling all the time to battle things. We think of our God as having this, this like coat, this enemy that is trying to fight for supremacy. And his name is Satan and God is wrestling him and having a hard time with him. And we think of that's how God is in the Bible. But friends, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not in a wrestling match with Satan. He's got him on a chain. The God of the Bible has supreme authority over all things. And what the book of Joel says to us is something fascinating, that God, the God of the universe, the sovereign God, is intricately involved in every aspect of universal history for the purpose of bringing mercy to his people and bringing judgment to his enemies. That's what we're going to see today. But I want God to open our eyes to these things. Only God can show you how big your God is. So stand with me. We're going to read sections of the book, and I'll I'll call it out if you're following along so you can know exactly where we are. These will come up on the screen for you if you want to follow along more easily. Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now go to chapter 1, verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because of, because my, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of the Lord, of the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call. 
For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beast of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. For he, he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. This is the reading of God's word and may he bless the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Now, Joel is a fascinating prophet. Um, he, he likely did his prophecy prior to Hosea's. And as we saw last week, we noticed what the Israel, what the people of Israel's sin were. And more than likely, Joel ministered in Judah, the southern kingdom, but he wrote to the northern kingdom about what was to come. In Joel's prophecy, you're going to notice that God not one time indicates what his issues are with the people of Israel. He doesn't tell them why he's unhappy with them, which leads us to assume that the people of Israel already knew that God was unhappy with them and already knew that something was on the horizon. But one thing is clear from the book of Joel is that there was a locust invasion. You'll see this in our first point, which is the locust and the army. And you're going to see this from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 11. Now, Joel starts his book off by telling us about this locust invasion. Now, I, I grew up in the great state of Texas where at times the locusts were so thick that it sounded like a freight train. I talked to a guy this morning that said when he was a young lad in the 40s and 50s, his parents were driving through Texas and they stopped for gas and the locusts were all over the ground and attacking everything. They couldn't get out of their vehicles. Many of you are probably old enough to remember Alfred Hitchcock's famous horror film, The Birds. Remember Birds, right? And this flock of birds would come and attack people randomly. That's what I picture when I picture this moment in Joel, right? I mean, these huge locusts coming and devouring everything. And what Joel describes is something awful 
And he actually says it's never happened before and will never happen again. And he says the effects of it were immense. Notice in the text that he says their vegetation was was destroyed. Vines and fig trees and bark is split off. Fields burned. Grain was destroyed. The harvest was, the harvest perished. Their food was gone. Storehouses are desolate and their herds of animals are in misery. The wine was destroyed. And because they used wine for their celebrations and normal drink, he also says, so was the happiness and joy in the land. Water had dried up. It seems that people from every part of life, whether they were a drunkard, a priest, a child, or a young woman, they were all affected by this locust devastation. And it doesn't take too much imagination to just think how hard this would have been for this culture of people. They were farming people. They made their living from the harvest. They paid their bills with the grain. They enjoyed celebrating with wine, and all of that is gone. Now, now without, you know, this isn't a perfect example, but just imagine the high, the wildfires that we have going on in the state of Oregon right now, demolishing everything in its path. All of our vineyards, all of our forests, taking away our homes, leaving everything that you've left to store up in your family. You know, all of you that are preppers, all of that's gone. Imagine all of that being done. That's the day that these people are facing. And Joel tells us how it happened. He said, locust after locust, wave after wave, what one locust missed, the other one got. It, this is a natural disaster of epic proportions. Dave showed us uh, uh, about the Pakistanis and wondering about this flooding going on. Well, imagine that in a broad scale, ruining everything that the economy possibly could, could take on. But the other part of this locust invasion that we have to ponder a little bit is how this would have challenged the people of Israel. See, in the people of Israel's story and part of their history was that God had at one time delivered them miraculously out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And one of the plagues that God miraculously brought onto Egypt was the eighth plague, locusts. We read about that in Exodus chapter 10 when when Moses wrote these words that he stretched out his hands and the locusts came and devoured everything that the seventh plague of hail had left behind. And these locusts ate everything, plants, fruit, nothing green remained. God brought locusts against God's enemies to free Israel in a day of the Lord moment. But in Joel's time... God brought locusts again, only this time he brought locusts against Israel. And Joel calls this in chapter 1, verse 15, the day of the Lord. Now this would have been absolutely shocking to the Jewish mind. God's day was always a day when God acted against his enemies and against the enemies of his people, and God had always protected his people. What would it mean in this moment when the locusts have devastated everything that God had brought these locusts in against Israel, and how did this relate to the day of the Lord? Well, David Pryor in his great commentary on the book of Joel wrote these words. Joel's contemporaries would have seen the locust plague as the result of God's enemies having their day. But the Lord had acted on behalf of his people to deliver them. 
This conviction may well have been seriously undermined as the impact of the catastrophe went on and on. But one day God would act. No, says Joel, we are not waiting for the day of the Lord. This catastrophe is evidence that the day of the Lord is upon us. Nor is this the end. The worst is yet to come. In other words, for the people of Israel, if they thought the locusts were destructive, if they thought the locust invasion was awful and it was a sign of God's activity against their sin, to say what we would say in the South, they ain't seen nothing yet. Which leads us to the army. The locusts were a precursor of a giant army coming after the people of Israel. We see it about, we read about this army in chapter two when Joel wrote these words. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will ever be after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Now, most historians would tell you that this is the terrifying army of Assyria, the foremost world power at the time, which was powerfully gaining territories left and right and destroying everything in their wake. Joel wrote later on in chapter 2 that people before them were in anguish and scared to death, that the Assyrians would come swiftly and suddenly like a thief, and the earth quaked before them. The sun and the moon would grow dark in that day. And in verse 11, he uses the exact same phrase again, calling this day the day of the Lord. And Joel wonders, who can endure it? Who can stand in that day, as awful as it's going to be? Meaning, it's going to be so devastating that you're going to wish you were not present. Now, it's hard to imagine how these words would have landed on Israel. Think about this. A people not yet recovered from the plague of the locusts are now being told that a foreign enemy is going to ransack their beloved land in the near future. Already crushed, they're headed for eradication. Now just do the math briefly for a moment about how your heart went when we started coming out of what it seemed like COVID and you started hearing about monkeypox. That pales in comparison to what these people were facing. But to make matters worse to the people of Israel, as if that wasn't bad enough, listen closely to what the Lord spoke about the army, and the locusts through the prophet Joel. Speaking of the Assyrian army, he wrote these words. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice, notice, before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. For he who executes his word is powerful. Do you catch what the prophet Joel was saying? Do you catch what God was saying? The Assyrian army was God's army. But it goes on, verse 25, when t- 
talking about the restoration of the people of Israel, he calls the locust his army. Now just do the math with me for a moment about this, because this should be something that should rattle each of our cages a little bit. A plague of locusts, like what God used on Israel's enemies, was being used by God against Israel, and God called the locusts his own army, or we could put it this way, God's own doing. A foreign army will run over the top of his nation, and God called that army his army. This foreign invader was working at the whim and the counsel of Almighty God against Israel. Now just process that for a moment. God was intricately involved in every aspect of Joel's time. And this should cause us to just for a moment pause and just think about this. Just do some math on this. If God can direct a foreign army to exile his people from their land, and God can cause a locust swarm to destroy every crop of his people's land. Here's a question. Is COVID-19 not in God's hands? Is an election not in God's hands? What about a world war? What about a wonky economy? What about high gas prices and food prices? What about... Personally, for that cancer diagnosis that you received this week. Are those things not in the hands of the sovereign God of the universe? David Pryor wrote these words. Joel's theology is robust and comprehensive. Can I just stop there? Church, we had better have a robust and comprehensive theology of God. He sees the hand of God in the totality of human experience. He shares the heart of God for every human action and inaction. He talks of God's personal and direct involvement in all human affairs. Now listen to this. If we write God out of his creation, and in particular out of the unpleasant and unacceptable aspects of the world he created, we will end up lost in a meaningless universe with no hope and no direction. You're going to notice in the book of Joel, which we'll talk about later, that Joel calls on the people to pray to God, to go to God. Now, why would he call upon that God to save them if he did not believe that God was involved in the process? In Joel's mind, God is intricately involved. Therefore, God's the only one who can stop it. God is intricately involved in every aspect of universal history. Do not miss that in the locust and the army. But also don't miss something else. There's a picture here. It's a, it's a powerful picture that Joel is painting of fallen humanity. When we sinned against God, disaster came and it always comes. Creation has worked against us since Genesis chapter 3 because of our sin cursing the ground that we walk on. We begin to war with one another. And we live in a Genesis 3 world with Genesis 3 people. And God is just simply, through the natural laws of this universe and through his own intricate hand being involved in everything, working to reveal sin produces death. And notice God is behind every activity to get our attention. God has opposed mankind from Genesis 3 to reveal to us our sin, and he uses creation to do it. And he uses each other to do it. 
wars and rumors of wars reveal to us, God is saying something to us. And this leads us to our next point, which is restoration through returning to the Lord. And you see this in beginning in chapter 2, verse 12, because that's a turning point in the book. It's where God calls his people to himself. Now, just for a moment, remember Joel's people. When you're reading these books, you had better begin with, how would these books have landed upon the original hearers? So just think about what they're going through. They're devastated. They're hungry, thirsty, not knowing where their next meal would come from. The laughter in their homes has turned to sadness and sorrow and hearing that a foreign army is now headed their direction. Probably like many of you during the troubles of your life, you are asking the question, where is God in the middle of all this trouble? What is God doing in this world? What is he after? Well, the beauty of the book of Joel is that God tells us what he's after. God is calling people to turn to him. And notice what he said very clearly. Return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. In other words, God is after complete allegiance and sincere devotion. He doesn't want checklist living where you just go, I'm going to go to church, check it off my list, and I'm going to go live... However I want to live the rest of the week. That's not how God views devoted living. And he's not talking about just moral codes simply obeyed because we want to do that thing right because we're Christian people or religious ritual that we just go through a rote script. No, God is after the whole heart. Friends, if you want to hear what God's goal is and all the trouble of this world that you're facing, that you think that you're looking upon and you're wondering, what is God after? Here's what God's after. He's after your undivided affection. That's what he's after. He wants us to love him with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. And he, and listen, are you aware, since he's after that, that God will use locusts and foreign armies? He will use a worldwide pandemic. He'll use government overreach and government inaction. He'll use inflation on demand to be tools in his hands to get you to realign your wandering heart. Are you aware of that? Are you aware that that is how vast and big and huge and how much your God is after you? God wants our hearts. He wants undivided affection for him. He's not after our sacrifices. He's after us. So listen, those of you who are zealots, God is more concerned about capturing your heart than he is with you winning the world. He is more concerned with your affection than he is with your activity. Your activity is going to reveal your affection, but God is after the affection that leads to the activity. He is more desirous of your loyalty than he is of your legendary status in your sports place or your gaming world or your work. God is after our hearts. He's after our devotion. Now what Joel does in the text in chapter 2 is fascinating. Joel hears this call from God to give him our hearts, and then Joel lays out reasons why we should do this. Now, this this is remarkably important because you can imagine being a, a child in Israel, seeing all the devastation, hearing God say, give me your heart, and you're going, but why? You're against us. You have brought this disaster. It doesn't seem like you're for us. 
It doesn't seem like you're after anything for us. You're destroying us. You're talking about a foreign enemy coming. I mean, imagine being like, you ever feel this way whenever things have gone bad in your house? Is God somehow against me? What is God doing in these moments? And Joel does something fascinating. Joel says, let me show you three reasons why you should turn to God. And the first one is found in chapter 2, verse 13. He tells the people to return to the Lord. Look what he says. Because he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now what Joel does is he quotes Exodus 34 when Moses has a moment where he asks to see God's face. And God tells him, Moses, you can't see my face. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And Moses sees the back of God go by him. And God is the one who determines and says, he is the Lord, the Lord God. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What Joel is doing is reminding the people of Israel, do you not see your God has been gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast. He has been patient with you. And it's remarkably important that we understand this because one of the most challenging things to recognize when we've wandered from God or we know that we're in opposition to God is that we should return to him because he's good. See, the way we like to share the gospel in our world is, let me show you the judgment to come and let me get you to repent. When you look at the way... The writers of the New Testament shared the gospel. They said, let me show you the grace, mercy, and love of God and tell you why you should repent. There's judgment coming, but there is a great, merciful, loving God who cares about you. That's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 2 that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. See, when we're wandering from God, it's so difficult to think, if I go back to God, will he receive me? Is God really that loving and that forgiving and that good and that patient? And Joel says, yes, yes, he is. God sent the locust. Why? To get you as his people to be dependent on him alone. He threatened to send an army to make you, his people, turn to him and run to him. He loves us so much that he's willing to do anything possible to reveal his love to his people like Sending his son. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But the second thing Joel shows us in verse 14, that God will stop. He'll relent. See, Joel believes this because he knows how much God loves his people and how much God loves his great name and how much God loves his glory. It's why Joel would call the people to fast and pray and seek the name of the Lord in verses 15 through 17. He believed that God would relent from disaster because God is good. If you just turn back to God, it will stop. But the third thing Joel knew about God was if they returned to God, he would restore them. Notice this in verses 18 through 32. He would restore their grain, wine, and oil. He would no longer make them a reproach among the nations. He would remove the threat of war hanging over them. Can you imagine how this would land upon them? We'd have food to eat. We'd celebrate again. We wouldn't have a foreign army facing us. He would bring joy back to the land. Trees would begin to grow again. The harvest would begin to come on again. And what the locusts took, he says, God would restore. They would once again eat and praise the name of the Lord, and they would never again be put to shame. Now what's fascinating is, Joel focuses on all the things the locusts took. 
But when you get to verse 28, something changes. See, when we think of restoration, we think of restoration as simply being restored back to what we lost. But friends, that's not how God thinks about restoration. In God's mind, restoration is restoring back to what he originally designed. And when God originally designed the people of Israel, he designed them to be a blessing to nations. He designed that out of them, they would would come someone that would be a blessing to everywhere. He designed that they would be filled with the Spirit of God, and they would be ambassadors and representatives of God's great name. Well, notice what Joel says in verse 28 about God's restoration. That God's plan was that his people would not just hold the promises of God and covenants to themselves, but they would be a people where his spirit would indwell them, and his people would be instruments in the hands of God to be for God's glory to every place on earth, to all lands, that whoever called on the name of the Lord would be saved, whether they were Jew or they were Gentile. God's plan for Israel was never to keep their heritage to themselves, but to bless the nations by being God's people. And God said, if they turn... God will restore them to everything he originally planned. In other words, hey, children of Israel, do you remember the Abrahamic covenant? I do. And if you turn to me, we'll restore all of that. Now, just to draw something out of here before we go to the last point, is that, I want you to know this clearly. Do you see God's heart toward you? I hope you do. God's heart toward you is it's the Lord's kindness that brings you to him. It's his steadfast love to you that brings you to him. He will utilize everything at his disposal to get you to taste and see that God is good. See, this is why he sent his son for us. Right? You're, you're aware that Jesus dying on the cross is the greatest moment of human evil in the history of the universe. Yet, according to Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Showing us that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So listen, if you have not trusted Christ, you need to know there is a gracious, merciful, forgiving God waiting for you to turn to him. He is that forgiving. He is that merciful. He is that slow to anger. As John Piper would say, God is like a highway patrolman trying to get you to stop. Not to give you a ticket but to give you a message so good that it couldn't wait until you got home. That is your God, Christian. When you run to this God, he is good. He is gracious. He is that good. And when we turn to this God, he restores what our sin has taken. See, where you were separated from God because of your sin, God gives you access to him. Where your sin made you an enemy of God, God makes you a child of God. Where your sin brought brought separation and made you un, unreconciled to God, he brings reconciliation and peace with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. God restores what our sin has taken. Now what's hard is when we read Joel's words in chapter 2 verse 28 that we reference about Israel being restored to the Abraham of promise. We know Israel's history a little bit because this view, we can look back and see 
These people didn't repent. In 722, the Assyrian army did overrun them. We know as well that when Jesus came on the scene, that many of them rejected Christ as their Messiah. Yet notice something with me in Acts chapter 2 that reveals that Israel's disobedience did not stop God from fulfilling his word in Joel chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it's called the day of Pentecost. This is after Jesus has died, after he has rose again, and after he has ascended to heaven. And Jesus said to his disciples, 120 of them, wait around right here. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and is going to fill you. And in that moment, in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they started speaking in other languages. And people from around all the known world were hearing the mighty works of God in their own tongue. And the people who were hearing it were thinking, these people that are talking this way are crazy or mad. They're, they're beyond their, they're out of their mind. And Peter says, no, actually that's not what's happening. What's happening is, this is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. That in the last days, which was considered the day of the Lord, that this blessing of the Spirit would come and indwell God's people. That those who trusted in God would be filled with God's people and with God's presence and Spirit. And they would be a blessing to all those in the known world. But it was also something else. It was a sign of judgment on those who did not believe. Because here they are in the land of Israel, their capital city. And they are hearing foreign languages being spoken in their own land. Which revealed, wait, a foreign army has come in. So for the unbelieving Jewish people, this was a sign of judgment. For us who are on this side of Calvary, this was a sign of blessing. That God was fulfilling his word even in Israel's disobedience. God will not allow Israel's lack of turning to him to stop him from fulfilling what he promised to his people. Again, revealing God is gracious, slow to anger. Merciful and abounding in steadfast love. See, we, we get a view of it from the other side of Calvary. Now let's quickly go to our last point, which is the final day. It's fascinating. When you go through the book of Joel, notice all the days of the Lord that we've talked about. There's a day of the Lord when the locusts came. There's a day of the Lord when the foreign army was coming. There's a day of the Lord when the Spirit was going to fill and indwell God's people that we saw fulfilled in the book of Acts chapter 2. There was a day of the Lord in the land of Egypt when God delivered his people and cast judgment upon the nation of Egypt and delivered his people. This tells us that throughout human history, there can be many days of the Lord, which should stir you a little bit to make you start questioning some things about how you have viewed, oh, let's just say the activities of the last four years. See, days of the Lord in the Bible seem to be moments when God is trying to say something to people. You all remember the moment, 9-11-2001? You remember within a day, our president was calling for a day of repentance and a day of prayer. Since 2001... How does it look upon your land right now? See, God was using a day of the Lord to say something. They seem to be moments when natural disasters hit. Moments when economies are shaken. They seem to be moments when it looks like darkness is winning. But here's the question that we have to look at these little days of the Lord moments. Why are they here? 
Why is God intricately involved in every aspect of human history for what particular reason? Well, one of the reasons that we can see from the book of Joel is that they are given, these moments happen for the purpose of shaking us. They happen to reveal to us as humans, we are small and God is God and they reveal to us our desperate need for God. Like the moment in Luke when the tower fell of Siloam and they asked Jesus, what does this mean? What, what's the happen here? Jesus didn't talk about the tower falling. He just says, unless you repent, you too will be likewise. Moments like this are to reveal to us that God wants our undivided affection. He wants our whole heart. So questions, is this how you, is this how you process COVID-19? Go back and look over your newsfeed, your your social media post. Did you did you view it as a moment when God was after your undivided affection? What about that recent job loss? You see it as a moment when God is just He's after your undivided affection. What about how you dealt with elections in the last five years, six years? That God's after your undivided affection. How have you responded when the Lord seems to be speaking through hardship? That's why we need to elevate how big God is. God is intricately involved, as we said, the big idea, in every aspect of universal history to bring mercy and judgment. But I want you to notice something else in Joel that we can't miss from these days of the Lord. They're intended to be a signpost of the final day. Joel 3 lays this out. Notice how he puts it. He says, on that day, that final day, God will judge his enemies and the enemies of his people. On that day, God will decide the eternal fate of men. He will bring them to the valley of decision. Now, some read the valley of decision. They say, that's the moment when we all can make a decision for Christ. No, that's not that decision. This is God's decision moment. This is when God separates the sheep from the goats and he says, these are mine, these aren't. That's the valley of decision. On that day, God will gather his people and he will finally and completely restore all things to the way he intended. See, this is the ultimate picture of what Joel is pointing us to. Day of the Lord, day of the Lord, day of the Lord to final day of the Lord. It's a picture of being saved for the final day of the Lord. It's a picture of salvation, that our sin separated us from God. And it led to God being against us, living in a Genesis 3 world, people living in this world. We see God fulfilling his word that sin brings death. But God, oh, what God he is. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Sit his son to be our savior and substitute for us. And if we turn to him, if we turn to this savior, he will restore what our sin has taken and he will fill us with his spirit. So we can represent him in the world just like he had planned before. And there is coming a day. There's coming a day. Yes, there's coming a day. A final day. 
that all days are heading for. You look at your calendar on your phone, every day on your phone being checked off is moving toward a final day. And on that final day, he will judge his enemies with perfect justice. He will protect and care for his people. He will restore all things in the way he intended. And justice will roll down like a river because righteousness will reign through Christ. There is a day. See, there is a day coming. Now, you that this book should just stir questions in us. It should stir questions. Are, are you completely devoted to God? Because if you're not, God has this unusual way of bringing a locust. He has an unusual way to invade your world with a foreign army that you go, where'd that come from? Do you live for the glory of God? Do you see that everything that you do, whether you eat or drink, is for the glory of God, just to represent Him in this earth. Do you see God's hand behind every event in your life to stir greater affection for Him? Tomorrow I'll write about how God interacted with Job or with Satan in the in the book of Job to give us an understanding of how God utilizes these type of things and moments. Yet God is still intricately involved. Do you see God's hand in these moments to just say, "Do you see me?" I'm with you. See, do these hard moments cause you to say, though he may slay me, still I will trust him. And are you prepared for the final day? Are you prepared for the valley of decision? That's not a day when you get a chance to go, hey, I want to make my decision now. No, the decision has already been made. And so are you prepared? Have you trusted Christ? Now let's do what the prophet Joel told the people to do. Let's turn our hearts to the living God. Let's pray. And as you're seated right now, do business with your God. He is a great shepherd. He loves you more than more than any of your under-shepherds here love you. And he knows the areas of affection in your life that are divided. He knows where your heart is not completely his. He knows if you know him or not, or if you trusted him or not. And this morning, I would just urge you to do business with him, to, to repent, to confess your sin to him, to acknowledge that he is, that Jesus is your Savior and King And Father, we do turn our hearts to you. We thank you for a hard book like Joel. We thank you for revealing to us that you are the Lord. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That you are consistently and patiently holding out your hand to us to say, turn to me. And I pray for our non-Christian friends that are here or who are watching online, God, that you would turn them to Christ that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus and find you to be good. I pray for the wandering Christian right now who's just been sludging away, been angry at you or bitter about the circumstances of their life. I pray that you would open their eyes to see actually you're, you're intricately involved to care for them, to turn them to you. Only you can do that, Father. Move in your people.
May our hearts be undivided in their affections. May our loyalty be to you and to you alone. May we want to serve and glorify King Jesus in this earth. And may we be ready for the final day by trusting in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.